Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 354 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again, and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to discuss everything that happened over the last week in AEW and NXT. We have an absolute ton to get to on today's show. As normal, there's plenty of stuff swirling behind the scenes once again in AEW. NXT went ahead and debuted their white and gold version 3.0, whatever you want to call it, uh, package for their brand. And WWE also, right before this show got taped, announced new commentary changes coming across Raw, SmackDown, and NXT. We're going to save that conversation for Tuesday's WWE show. But also busy this week is the Getting Over Wrestling podcast itself. Not only did we already publish a WWE Extreme Rules Ultimate Preview that you absolutely should not miss, but we're doing today's show and we're coming back on Saturday night as soon as Extreme Rules goes off the air with a special instant analysis episode. I said special. I meant signature, our signature instant analysis episode shortly after that premium live event ends. You do not want to miss that. If you are a first time listener, hit the subscribe button. Join us here weekly at the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We talk WWE on Tuesdays, NXT and AEW on Thursdays. And then, of course, we do special shows for uh, premium live events, pay-per-views, interviews, numerous other things. So welcome into today's show. If you do happen to be a first time listener, it also gives me the opportunity to remind you that this show is all about Defy. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop us a five-star rating on Apple. Take a few extra moments. Also leave a written review. Let everyone know why you love the show and why they should listen and subscribe. We will read those five-star written reviews here on the podcast every time we get a new one, as you guys have heard in prior episodes. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Not only do you get to find out when episodes drop before anyone else, unless you have alerts set up on your phone through Overcast or one of those apps, which by the way, you should probably do, but I digress. Let me get back to it. Not only do you find out as soon as episodes drop on our Twitter account at Getting Overcast, we open up polls before and after pay-per-views and premium live events. That way you guys can give us your expectation and your final grades. That's content we discuss here on the podcast. Our DMs are open. You can tweet us, send in questions, comments. We read those on the show and we tweet about wrestling news and, you know, fun stuff as well all week long, not just during the four major shows, but also during the week in between. So every reason in the world to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Now, this is normally the part of the show where I tell you which brand we're going to discuss first for one reason or another. But this week, it's kind of even. AEW had their three-year anniversary show. NXT unveiled a total new uh, look, a branding, just a somewhat change in direction, though not that massively. So I'm going to go ahead and let fate decide. I'm going to flip a coin. Heads is going to be AEW. Tails is going to be NXT. Whichever one it lands on is what we will start with. Hey, Google, flip a coin. 
It landed on heads. It landed on heads, and we are therefore starting with AEW. A reminder to everyone listening, uh, if you're a first-time listener, if you've listened to multiple shows, we have timestamps in our episode descriptions. So if you want to hear the AEW stuff, great. Keep Stay tuned. We're going to get to it right now. If you want to jump ahead to the NXT stuff, you can do that and find that timestamp in the episode description, but I hope you listen to the entire show. So let's kick it off with AEW. Uh, Dynamite, as I mentioned earlier, was the third anniversary show for AEW. I just thought it was kind of interesting that out of all the special shows they do, this one was in a notably small arena. The set was basically like one big screen with two entrance tunnels. There was an extremely short ramp to the ring. The upper deck was empty, at least parts that I saw that they showed on TV, it was blacked out. And given all of the TV specials they've done in the company history over the last six months, obviously Grand Slam was not that long ago. This almost felt like the opposite from an aesthetic perspective. Like on one hand, the intimacy was actually kind of nice. On the other, it just didn't feel like a big deal, which it really should when you're promoting a three-year anniversary show. One other weird thing I noticed before we get into the breakdown of Dynamite and Rampage AEW will now bleep its own wrestlers if they say shit or something to that effect. But the fans can chant the F word loud and clear, which they did twice on Wednesday, and that's somehow okay. I just thought that was really strange when you put it in perspective, especially then when you look at WWE and they're bleeping holy shit chants. And it's just like, first of all, the word shit never needs to be bleeped. I don't care if it's PG, you know, uh, what is it, TV 14, uh, MA, whatever the rating of the show is, the word shit does not need to be bleeped. But the F word does, you know, and I'm surprised that they're allowing the audience to kind of get away with that. I believe there was a period of time where AEW like actively told the crowd ahead of some events, like, please don't do that. I don't know if that's completely accurate, but they probably should. Like, it's it's okay. You screwed up. You messed up, but you effed up and like chanting it so loud that it comes across on TV. I'm not saying it's I'm offended by it. I curse on this show occasionally, and certainly in my personal life, if you knew me, I curse all the time. So I'm I'm not shy about using the F word or or many other words. Um, I just feel like for a television product that's trying to reach a mass audience, that's trying to appeal to younger people, not just teenagers and young adults, I kind of feel like they should figure out a way to stop that from happening or at least reduce it significantly. So I don't know, just something I noticed on the show that I wanted to mention here. Anyway, let's get into breaking down Dynamite and Rampage. This week is going to be a little bit odd because the biggest story in AEW is not actually the biggest story on television. And therefore, for the first time in who knows how long, in terms of a regular show, we're actually going to start with something that happened on Rampage, which was Hangman Page, he was backstage. Uh, He said he's looking forward to his match against Jon Moxley in two weeks. Andrade El Idolo and Jose showed Page in Dark Order footage of Hangman eliminating 10 in the Battle Royal. Andrade said next week is the anniversary of Brody Lee's last match, so he challenged Ten to a match for his mask. Ten agreed, but then he flipped it, saying if he wins, Andrade has to leave AEW for good. Stokely Hathaway and Ethan Page then informed Andrade that Hardy is contract tampering with Private Party. So now the contract tampering stuff, it's clearly like a WWE thing that they're trying to turn into a TV thing. But let me roll my roll my eyes and kind of move away from that. Let me get this straight in terms of the Andrade and 10 storyline as it was booked on Rampage. After weeks of Andrade propositioning 10, really for no reason whatsoever, now he wants his mask. 
And then 10 escalates it by wanting Andrade's career. And Andrade just accepts this. Like, what? When you do a mask or a career match, let alone a mask versus career match, that needs to be the finale of a blood feud or something like that. Not the first match between a couple guys. This would have needed either a couple matches preceding it to kind of build it up, or at least a storyline that was so intense and specific that the feud could be settled no other way. For example, Andrade taking offense to Ten wearing a mask because that's representative of Lucha Libre culture, and he goes after him and he destroys him. Doesn't just tase him one time, but just like tries to mangle his body and injure him. And, and by the way, during this, Andrade's propositioning him to join them. But no, now, because he apparently won't join him, he wants his mask as if that would do something, as if it is so meaningful to Preston Vance that Andrade winning the mask would result in something. I, I just, I don't get it. I don't understand what they were doing here. I don't even think we've seen one of these segments between these two guys happen outside the backstage area to show that this is something important. This is something that requires a mask versus career match. If this build led to anything, it would have been a stipulation of 10 leaving Dark Order for Andrade's group if he won. And yet, that part of the entire thing was completely ignored in booking this match. On top of that, I didn't believe for a second that Andrade would be leaving AEW. Even if that was the case, and let's say Tony Khan granted him a release and he was doing a loser leaves town match to put someone over. Why would the person he put over be 10 as opposed to someone who could get over massively from the rub? Let's say like a Ricky Starks or someone like that. This was Andrade's first like booked regular match, not counting like a battle royal or anything like that since August and his first singles match since June. Horrendous booking here. And you may wonder, hey, Silver King, why did you say it was his first regularly booked match? Well, let me tell you, because between Rampage and Dynamite, before I could even get this opinion out and have it like exist on its own, uh, before Rampage and Dynamite on Wednesday, Andrade did an interview with a Spanish language media outlet, and he basically did a shoot, like a, a shoot interview. And as part of the things he said, he mentioned that Sammy Guevara accused him of basically hitting him too snug while they were in the ring. And he referred to Sammy as like a little girl for having a problem with it. He said, hey, if I'm hitting you snug, just hit me back or don't complain about it. Like no one in WWE ever complained with the way I wrestled. It suddenly became an entire blow up on Twitter between them. There were other AEW wrestlers pointing out that these guys are being stupid for airing dirty laundry on social media. It was a whole deal. Andrade said he told Sammy to his face what he said to the media. Sammy called him a liar. He said Ric Flair is the only reason Andrade is employed and that he failed to get over at a second company and should just go back to WWE like everyone knows he wants to do. So to clarify, Andrade put Sammy's name out there first. There's no doubting that. But Sammy clearly escalated the situation once again. And it ended with Andrade basically saying, I'm going to see you on Wednesday. Almost like a threat. And wouldn't you know it, right before Dynamite on Wednesday, Tony Khan canceled the Andrade versus 10 match that was scheduled for Rampage. Shortly thereafter, it was reported by TMZ that Andrade and Sammy got into a backstage altercation before the show. Their report was that they verbally argued Sammy pushed Andrade and they both threw punches. Other reports have Andrade as the only aggressor 
uh, Andrade was sent home by Tony Khan. Sammy was not, which perhaps lends credence to Andrade being the aggressor. But it's nevertheless another incident involving Sammy. Here we go again. It's also another clear instance of Tony having no idea how to manage talent or egos. Don't forget, AEW, a month later, is still reviewing the incident from All Out. Nothing has been said publicly or privately. People in the elite executive vice presidents who seemingly did nothing wrong, but we don't know with that with 100% certainty, and we're not going to know until findings or whatever the hell is released or at least determined internally, they're still suspended, yet Sammy does not receive any punishment for escalating this. I'm sure that's going to go over real well with the boys and girls in the back when Sammy's been like the key component in half of the backstage drama this year. What are they going to do? Are they going to do like a third talent meeting? I'm honestly at a loss now. There's not much more to say that hasn't already been said about this type of stuff. Tony, at this point, seems more concerned about winning the Wrestling Observer Awards, like for Booker of the Year, and taking shots at WWE. Yes, he literally mentioned trying to win that award in an interview this week. And yes, he took more shots at WWE in the media that I read right before we taped this podcast. Um, So those comments that I'm making on Tony are not out of left field. Somehow, he called out WWE for releasing talent while making record profits, ignoring the fact that his father did the exact same thing with Flex and Gate and probably plenty of his other companies in the past, which is just pure unadulterated hypocrisy. The point being, he seems more concerned about that stuff than managing his talent, commanding respect from his employees, and keeping his house in order. Because you can bet Andrade and Sammy were absolutely talked to before Dynamite. I'm sure it happened like Monday or Tuesday during the week. And if they or anyone else back there truly respected Tony, there would have been no chance this got physical. And I've seen some people comparing this to like incidents that have happened in WWE, both recently and in the past. But what people don't realize is this was something directly alluded to by Andrade ahead of time, not in the heat of the moment, such as Charlotte Flair and Nia Jax or Charlotte Flair and Becky Lynch or Shawn Michaels with the Sunny Days comment and Bret Hart back in the day, where something was said and people went backstage and it spilled over immediately. And there was no early warning to the entire thing. So you have to put it in perspective where you can say, well, wrestlers fight and people do this. Sure, but not when there's a warning ahead of time and then they're spoken to and it still happens anyway. That goes back to leadership and having control of your locker room. Now, there is some sentiment here that Andrade did all of this because he's wanting to get fired. And Tony, obviously, as we know, laid down an edict that he is not releasing anyone, full stop. So Andrade perhaps is trying to force his hand here. And this would not be the first time that a wrestler has acted out trying to get released. Though, at least to my knowledge and understanding, in WWE, it never got physical. But what's interesting here is AEW made all these promises when they started about not treating talent the way WWE does. We're gonna be better. And to their credit, in two very important areas, they don't treat talent the same. The first is they allow them to be I would call it semi-independent contractors who do outside work. That's very commendable. The second is that Tony does not cut people who want to be working there before their contracts are up. That's praiseworthy because he's keeping people employed, he's paying them, and he's not screwing with their livelihood. Those are two massive positives I don't want to overlook. But then there's the empty promises. 
including health insurance and better working conditions. Both bullshit, unless you're a full-time employee, which is extremely limited in the number of people that have that role in AEW. He said women would be the paid exactly the same as men, the main event women and the main event men, and they'd be featured well, obviously bullshit. And he also said that he would not keep people who didn't want to be there. Not only is Tony flatly denying release requests, but now he's potentially gonna be paying people who don't want to be there to not be on TV, which is exactly what WWE has done in the past. And he said he would not do. He's doing it solely to keep them away from the competition. I could go on and on about this. Tony made comments this week about why he takes shots at WWE. It sounded like a bunch of bullshit. If he says it again, we can address it. The point of this entire thing is that AEW needs to clean its shit up fast. And if you're Tony, maybe you should actually consider releasing Andrade, not only to like improve the locker room, but because you have booked him terribly since the literal day he started in your company. When he made his first appearance, it was horrible. And from then on, it has not gotten better. They clearly have no significant or real plans for him. Andrade is doing nothing in AEW. Just let the guy go back to WWE after 90 days, 120 days, whatever, and wipe your hands of the entire thing. That's what WWE did with Jeff Hardy and Tony Storm. Both wanted out. They did things to get themselves fired. And WWE realized, look, it is diminishing value forcing these two to stay. What's the point? Let's just move on. That's what Tony needs to do with Andrade. And you can make an argument he should do it with Malachi Black and Buddy Matthews as well. It's a completely fair thing to say, hey, look, their roster is absolutely loaded. There's rumors that they just signed Bandito on top of signing Roosh full-time and a lot of other people, extremely talented people that are still there that have been signed as of late. Do you really need Andrade? And then do you really need Malachi Black and Buddy Matthews? I don't think they do. I would just cut it Take that money, try to make a big splash by hiring another WWE talent when their contract expires, who you will use well, and then just move on and allow your company to help, you know, regenerate itself and heal. Because right now, AEW is in a state of disrepair, and it's largely because of decisions and actions that Tony Khan has made. And that just needs to be said. All right, let's keep going with the breakdown on Rampage. We had John Silver against Roosh. This was the main event. Silver hit a brain buster. Alex Reynolds stopped Jose from interfering. Andrade distracted Silver, giving Roosh an opening to hit Bull's Horns for the win. The heels attacked after the bell with Evil Uno 10, Butcher, Blade, and Hangman all running down. Hangman and Roosh went at it. That set up a match coming up between them. That's going to be really good, by the way. Uh, Hangman then hit Jose with Buckshot Lariat to end the show. This was solid but unspectacular as a main event. And I thought the post-match brawl was pretty ho-hum. On Dynamite, Dark Order basically announced the replacement match for Andrade 10, which is now a trios championship match between them and Death Triangle. Solid idea because they still want to honor Brody Lee. I think it's two years after his last match or something like that. And now with all three members, not all three, but three of the Dark Order members now get to wrestle. So that for a last minute change in booking, that's really not a bad idea. And I think that match is going to be very good. So we had Hangman against Roosh over on Dynamite. Jose and Roosh showed Private Party on film, how they were nowhere to be found helping out the crew, but they said they needed to be there for this match against Hangman. Jose's interference was enough for Roosh to counter a buckshot lariat with a knee and a straitjacket pile driver for a near fall. Hangman countered Bull's Horns with a clothesline and landed buckshot lariat for a win. He got a pretty strong pop after that. 
Private Party came out after the bell, but John Moxley entered through the crowd. Mox said he's been waiting for this match for three years and wants there to be one last man standing in AEW when it's over. I thought that was going to lead to a stipulation, last man standing, because he said it, but it didn't. Mox promised to break his face and choke him until he turns blue, but he said he's in the way of Mox being the one true top guy in AEW and the world. Mox said he respected Hangman's talents. He actually admired him too, but that goes away when the bell rings. Hangman wanted to fight. Mox gave him a final warning and told him to watch his mouth. As this happened, MJF was watching backstage, hugging the casino chip. So both the match I mentioned and the post-match, they were great. Hangman and Roosh, they're two of the top wrestlers in AEW, two of the best ones. So no surprise there that a match between them would be very good. And we obviously got the right winner given Hangman is the number one contender. I like that it was a clean finish with a finisher. Mox was strong on the mic afterward, as he always is. Was it his best promo? Not really, but still really strong. I've said my piece already on the casino chip, now basically being a very convenient ripoff of Money in the Bank, so I won't repeat it here. Plus, we still have two two weeks until this match goes down. So there is more time for development and to see what exactly transpires. So let's go to the opening match for Dynamite, which was MJF against Wheeler Yuta. MJF did a great uh, powerbomb backbreaker, which it looked awesome, but I would be scared to do that on my own knee, like for fear of, I don't know, breaking it or tearing something. Uh, There were two sequences of multiple pinning combination counters. Yuta caught MJF with a hurricanrana off the ropes and a tope suicida. Yuta was going to try a splash when MJF rolled away and gave him the finger. So instead of jumping halfway into the ring, Yuta jumped two thirds of the way across the ring and still nailed him with like 60% of the splash. It was a really nice spot. MJF locked in salt of the earth, but before Yuta could touch the bottom rope, MJF dragged him back in the ring more and flipped him over, like flipped over his back, I should say, to put extra pressure on the submission salt of the earth and get the victory. Yuta offered his hand after the bell and he dared MJF to be a man and shake it. MJF was just about to shake his hand when Lee Moriarty jumped in the ring and started beating on Yuta. MJF yelled at Moriarty that he didn't tell him to do that. Stokely then jumped on the apron while he was eating an apple. He handed MJF the dynamite diamond ring. Moriarty held Yuta back. MJF put the ring on, but as he did, William Regal started walking down, putting brass knucks on his hand. Fans chanted, you fucked up audibly, which as I said, apparently allowed, but WWE has to bleep shit. And MJF just walked away from the entire thing. So I thought it was basically like perfect booking here as far as the match was concerned. We talked last week about MJF needing to get clean wins to build his profile ahead of taking the world title. Yuta lost to a submission finisher and MJF came out of it simply looking like the better wrestler. The post-match stuff, it's a big wait and see situation because it certainly seemed unnecessary in the moment, but I'm sure there's a reason it went that way. So we can't really criticize it or praise it until we know why they went in that direction, which I'm assuming we're going to find out next week. So let's move to the main event of Dynamite. That was Brian Danielson and Daniel Garcia against Chris Jericho and Sammy Guevara. JAS cut a promo on Garcia backstage saying he turned his back on them. And then in the same breath, saying they hope he makes the right decision. I guess to stay with them. Like this goes back to the convoluted booking I was talking about last week. Jericho repeated that he would desecrate the legacy of the Ring of Honor as its champion. Garcia and Jericho shook hands after the bell as the crowd chanted, fuck you, Sammy. As I said, two different times during the show, the crowd chanted the F word. Garcia was standing off with Jericho when Sammy flew into the picture and Garcia just took him out with a single punch, which was a great spot. Then he battled Jericho, putting him in a Dragon Slayer sharpshooter. He also got double knees up on a Lion Salt and then caught Sammy flying, countering him into a label lock. Danielson put the move on Jericho in stereo. Danielson and Garcia then did stereo hammer elbows, 
but Sammy flipped out of an attempted double avalanche backdrop. He hit Danielson with a standing Spanish fly and Garcia with a kick to the spine for a really nice rally. Garcia countered the GTH and hit a pile driver. Jericho caught Brian running at ringside and then he did a spine buster into a table that didn't break. So Jericho did a vertical suplex to actually break the table. Sammy then hit Garcia with the GTH. He did it so hard that his neck actually bent sideways. But for some reason, Sammy didn't cover after hitting his own finisher. So he instead climbed the top rope and tried a shooting star press. Garcia got knees up. Garcia then put Sammy in the Dragon Slayer, but he was too far from the ropes for like the spot that they were doing to finish the match. So for no reason, he inched himself closer to the ring ropes, like a full foot. So Jericho could hit him in the head with a title. The referee not only didn't see it, she was confused why the submission was suddenly broken. And then Sammy just got on top of Garcia and covered him for the one, two, three. JAS came out to celebrate. They threw Sammy on their freaking shoulders as Jericho looked at Garcia kind of with despair and Garcia had his head in his hands upset. Danielson was just laid out at ringside the whole time. He didn't factor into anything else. So all you need to know about the booking here was the fan response to the finish, which was mostly dead silence with like a couple light boos. I'm not gonna go so far and say the wrong winners were chosen because clearly the goal is to stretch the story. We could have at least had resolution to Garcia's alignment last week or this week, and yet it's just still going. Clearly, they're extending to Jericho Garcia at full gear, probably for the ROH title, and that's not necessarily a bad idea. But holy shit, allow Garcia to establish his alignment. And beyond that, I just could not fathom the booking decision to have Sammy be the one to get the fall, beat Garcia, and then get a huge celebration propped up in the air above everyone else after all of the shit we already talked about on today's show, not to mention the Eddie Kingston stuff and things that happened in the past. Talk about tone deaf. You could have had Jericho win and still made Garcia fight Sammy first and and made Jericho say, that's what I want you to do just as easily. And if you guys like remember a decade ago, Cena wins LOL from WWE, Wednesday officially achieved Jericho wins LOL status in AEW. It's been on the precipice for quite some time, but now it's just fact. Jericho, they don't let him lose anything. It's incredible. But here we are at the end of another Dynamite with Garcia not officially out of JAS, not officially with BCC, and instead just in purgatory from a storyline perspective. The wrestling here for this match was extremely strong in parts, which you had to expect given four performers the caliber of these guys. The problem was less the team that won and more the belt shot schmaz finish, the clunky execution of it, and the decision to put Sammy over. And when you consider this happened on a 15-minute overrun and that this was the way AEW celebrated its three-year anniversary, like, holy shit, why not have Jericho be the one to go over given he was the main star that kind of started things and he's your ROH champion? I just found it to be totally nonsensical. I'm not saying it was the worst finish on Dynamite episode, but in terms of like memorably bad ones, this is definitely up there, like probably in the top 10, along with like Dark Order on that New Year's episode and a couple others. Again, among the worst, not the worst, but it just was not the right decision. On Rampage, we had a tag team championship match. The Acclaimed defended against Private Party, Butcher, and Blade. This was definitely not Max Caster's best rap for this one, though he did give a line about Ben Simmons that was pretty good. Matt Hardy watched on a screen backstage. The acclaimed hit their finishers to win in 10 minutes. The booking was odd. What did these teams do to deserve a title match? 
you know, we haven't seen either of them do anything meaningful on TV in a really long time, let alone win their way into the spot. On top of all that, AEW still refuses to do triple threat tag team matches correctly with three legal men at a time. The match was unspectacular, and it made even less sense that it was booked leaving these guys off of the live dynamite last week after winning their titles, as I mentioned previously. So on Dynamite, we had National Scissoring Day with the acclaimed, another mediocre cast of rap leading into it. Fans chanted, oh, scissor me, daddy, which I apparently just did as well. As Anthony Bowens got behind a podium to start the festivities, Bowens put over their record, their championship win, the fan base, their t-shirt sales. He said AEW now means acclaimed every Wednesday and talk shit about Swerve. Billy Gunn then presented them with golden scissors. Tony Schiavone just would not shut the fuck up during the segment, saying how fun it was. I'm having so much fun. This is so much fun. Uh, The fans scissored each other at one point. Caster talked about his dad being on the Washington Super Bowl team, uh, Super Bowl 17 team, I guess it was. Uh, They were going to scissor again when Swerve interrupted, calling all of it idiotic and putting the whole victory on Billy. Swerve said he wanted Billy one-on-one. Mark Sterling then came out wearing a pink suit saying he's been claiming Swerve is a jerk for months and that the acclaimed needed his services to help prove it. Instead, the acclaimed beat Sterling, hit a scissor leg drop, and then, of course, scissored each other. Uh, The crowd was red hot for this entire thing, and for good reason. The acclaimed is over as hell. As I said last week, there was really no reason to wait on this. It should have really been done last Wednesday, but they tried to do some like Washington, D.C. political tie-in with the podium. It was very convoluted that it just didn't need to be done. You didn't have to bring like politics into an appreciation day for your new tag team champions when that shit happens all the time. Chris Jericho just did like a JAS pizza party or whatever it was a week ago. And and they've done that millions of times. So I get the attempt, but it delayed the celebration for the new champions by an entire week when they should have been able to celebrate last Wednesday after Dynamite. Um, So whatever, it was good, right? The crowd was into it. That's solid. Is it memorable long-term? Am I going to go back and watch the National Scissoring Day again? I won't, but entertaining in the moment for sure. On Rampage, Gun Club with Stokely and Morrissey made jokes about all the titles FTR holds. They said they wanted the AEW tag team titles and would leapfrog FTR for a shot, given FTR has never gotten their chance. At least we've seen the guns on TV as opposed to the other tag teams that got a title match we were just talking about. Uh, Turning AEW shit booking of FTR into a kayfabe storyline, that doesn't make it any better. The guns aren't beating the acclaimed. FTR absolutely should, but that would be face versus face. So I guess we'll see what they do here. On Rampage, Lee Moriarty fought Fuego de Sol, staying with the firm, uh, you know, to, to break this all down. We got this AEW dark match on TV. Moriarty won in a couple minutes with a crossface to literally zero reaction from the crowd. Morrissey then chokes Len Fuego as if that was supposed to be an accomplishment or something like that. Zero point zero. There's just no benefit to this at all. It doesn't need to be on television. I don't get what they were doing. On Dynamite, we had another Fuego match. Luchasaurus against Fuego. Luchasaurus obviously won in under a minute. He was ready to throw Fuego outside the ring when Jungle Boy ran in with a chair shot to the gut and another to the back. Luchasaurus basically no-sold it. JB screamed that they were best friends and Luchasaurus broke his heart by choosing Christian Cage. So JB promised to break his body and told him to pick the time and place. Christian chose next week in his hometown of Toronto. This was basically just to set up the match, which is fine. There was nothing else to it. Just kind of the same storyline. On Rampage, Wardlow and Samoa Joe cut a promo backstage about now being Warjo, apparently a tag team of some kind that's going to dominate. Why? Like, seriously, that's my analysis. Why? 
They each hold a mid-card title. Wardlow has been on ice since winning his. Why can't he develop a singles feud with someone? Why is Joe being used with Wardlow when he's over as hell on his own and neither of them need? Yes, for sure. Them together is a super formidable team, but the champions are baby faces. So again, why are they doing this? On Dynamite, we had a TNT title match, Wardlow against Brian Cage. They said that he answered an open challenge, though there was never a challenge that was opened. There was a promo with Cage and three people I have never seen before. There weren't even nameplates to like tell me who they were. During Cage's entrance, Excalibur explained they were the Embassy, a Ring of Honor stable founded in 2004. How about, I don't know, like establishing a group on TV before you randomly put them on screen with Cage, who by the way, was getting his first AEW TV match in a calendar year, yet was still able to challenge for the TNT title despite that fact. Like, holy shit, folks, what are we doing here? Anyway, they had a match. Wardlow caught Cage trying a 619. He did a, he turned that into a world strongest slam. The Prince guy for the embassy distracted the referee as Cage did like an inverted Alabama slam style sit-down powerbomb. It was a really nice spot for big men. Then Cage did a vertical suplex for the second rope, lifting Wardlow from the apron inside. Wardlow came back with a one-armed spine buster. Cage countered a lariat into like, I guess you could call it an F2.5 instead of an F5. But Wardlow hit four power bombs, and he eventually got the win in 10 minutes. Immediately after the bell, the other two embassy guys attacked Wardlow. Samoa Joe made the save. The heels then beat them down four on two until FTR came down, and the embassy dipped out of the ring. FTR, and I think they're called the Gates of Agony, which are like the other two guys in the embassy, they had a face-to-face before the segment ended. So I assume that's setting up like a Ring of Honor tag team title match or something like that. Look, by definition, we did get big meaty men here. And credit words do also because it was a damn good Hoss match between Wardlow and Cage. Again, though, Cage got a title match after being off TV for an entire year, set up through this embassy whole open challenge thing. If they had actually done an open challenge rather than announce the match ahead of time and then Cage answered it, then it's a surprise return. And you're kind of cool with Cage getting the title match because it's a surprise. Wardlow is caught off guard and it's a big man versus big man match. Instead, by promoting it, it ruined the parts of the open challenge that make it interesting and exciting. And then I have to mention the embassy got introduced as like another Ring of Honor adjacent group when we're already dealing with so many others that just are not adding to the product. They're not making AEW better. And it quickly became more important than Wardlow actually defending and retaining his title, which is something he hasn't really been doing recently. I just don't understand the thought process on this entire thing. We'll keep going. Uh, We had Darby Allen against Jay Lethal. Midway through the match, Lethal hit an avalanche, dragon screw, and then the figure four. Darby came back with a trip counter to Lethal Injection and a code red. Sanjay Dutt and Satnam Singh stood on stage, but Lethal motioned for them to stay away from the match. They traded really quick and athletic pinning combinations with Darby locking in Last Supper, for the win. After the bell, Darby stopped Lethal from leaving, and he seemed to be telling him he doesn't need the others. He offered his hand, and after a little shove to like get his mind right, Lethal did shake his hand and left. In a vacuum, I quite enjoyed the booking here, but there was one big problem. It was the second match on the show to MJF and Yuta, and the booking was almost identical to the first match with pinning combination counters and then the post-match handshake attempt. The only difference was MJF won via submission and Darby got Last Supper. So again, in a vacuum, it was extremely solid. And I am curious to see like why they did that and what the purpose was. 
but it was also super repetitive given it happened not only on the same show, not only in the same hour, but one segment after they just did something similar with MJF and Yuta. And again, you just got to be better than that from a booking perspective. On Rampage, Jamie Hayter fought Willow Nightingale. Willow hit Death Valley Driver, but as she went for a top rope move, Britt Baker grabbed her ankle. Hayter pulled her off the ropes with an awesome, like, delayed German suplex, and then hit a short arm lariat for the win in seven minutes. Really good wrestling here with Hayter in a featured spot against talented opposition, and we'll see if more comes from it with Hayter specifically. Over on Dynamite, we had Tony Storm, Athena, and Willow against Hayter, Serena Deeb, and Penelope Ford. Britt Baker announced in a taped promo that Soraya will not be wrestling in AEW because doctors have not cleared her to compete. Therefore, she said it's actually her house. Excalibur questioned this immediately. We'll get back to that. This took place at the 9 p.m. hour, so it was moved up a couple segments. And it only had one commercial break instead of the double break, but this was an extra long show. And the main event went long. So putting it in this spot, was it different? Yes. Was it an improvement? No. It's very similar to what it was previously. Soraya came out with the faces. Uh, There was a choreographed double vertical suplex spot while Storm was in a submission hold. Willow hit a nice spinebuster on Hayter with Deeb super late to break the fall. Rebel grabbed a crutch that Soraya stole from her. Hayter did a backbreaker on Storm onto her knee. Ford avoided the move by like arcing her back backwards and then stumbled around to hit a cutter before standing up. Willow finally came back with a doctor bomb for the win in about 10 minutes or so. Baker came in immediately after the bell to get in Soraya's face and talk shit to the crowd. Soraya slugged her and they brawled while standing upright. Rebel wound up alone with Soraya and she ate a super kick to end the segment to a decent reaction. Not, not great, but it was decent. Uh, it was obvious what Baker said was a red herring because the heel would never be the, the one to like announce that. And Excalibur questioned it immediately. Soraya getting physical proves she is cleared, at least technically. And Dave Meltzer seemed to suggest last week that AEW was trying to get her cleared. Basically saying without saying it that maybe they were doing some doctor shopping to find someone to give her the thumbs up. Obviously, that's reckless, but it's a trend that we have certainly seen with this company. I'm not really accusing them of anything. I'm not Forget not really, I am not accusing them of anything. But to doctor shop potentially someone who was in the condition Soraya was in, you know, you do have to question that potentially. That's all I'm saying. So anyway, Soraya is cleared and will be wrestling, one has to assume. It would have been more effective, in my opinion, for Baker to get in her face and then Soraya to slug her out of nowhere because then the smart fans would have been surprised. Oh my God, she hit her. She's getting physical. It's a big moment. Instead of Baker like prefacing the entire thing and pretty much telling you, hey, Soraya either tonight or soon is gonna get physical. We've mentioned here how her first couple appearances Nothing happened that way. Beyond her, though, you know, the match was really good. It was really strong six-woman action. Everyone got their stuff in for the most part. Was this a step up for the women's division? It's tough to say. It was about the same time they normally get. It was only one match on the show. Soraya went on Twitter to, to praise AEW for giving the women three segments. The other two segments were like 30-second backstage interviews. That's not new. They've done that before. I think maybe in the past two or three segments uh, in totality has been the maximum. One match and then one or two backstage segments. That's about normal. So until it goes beyond that, I'm not going to praise them for doing the same thing, except in a Soraya wrapping paper. That's not how things change. Uh, AEW also has frequently put on good women's wrestling. And it normally happens, guess what? 
when good women's wrestlers are the ones competing. Soraya being on TV and putting a lumberjack match on doesn't solve any problems, especially when the champion, Tony Storm, is not standing out, she's not the one cutting promos, and she's not even developing her own feud right now. Now, if Thunder Rosa isn't back soon, I could see Storm Hater and Soraya Baker as the two women's full gear matches. I'm sure they'll throw something to Jade Cargill as well. Uh, Storm Hater could actually be one of the best U.S. women's matches of the year if it's allowed to happen. The other, Soraya Baker, interesting from a storyline standpoint, not as much from an in-ring standpoint, but we will see what AEW ends up doing or does not end up doing. On Rampage, speaking of Jade, she put herself over again for being the baddest bitch. She said that Trina confirmed that. She again cried about not getting competition. Vicky Guerrero showed up for the first time in a year, I don't know, with Nyla Rose saying Nyla never got pinned by her. Marina Shafir was also there for some reason. Maybe she's working with Vicky, I don't even know. Whatever at this point with Jade, the title should have gone to Athena. I know Chris Statlander got hurt and that was the plan, but this is just a whole go nowhere thing. Backstage, after she got the fall on Dynamite, Willow was all hyped up, saying she wanted to challenge for the TBS championship. Jade and the baddies stepped up, saying Jade's already beaten Willow twice, but Willow was basically like, I don't care, I want to try again. So maybe I'll win this time. Uh, Spoiler alert, she's not going to win. But I did like her promo here. I liked what Willow did. You know, Jade and the TBS title, it's just, it's go nowhere. Like I said, it's it's the same thing every week. It's the missionary position. I'm not going to play the sound job. We got to move on. Uh, Madison Ray, this is the third segment we were talking about, put over Sky Blue backstage while Ty Mello and Anna Jay laughed at them, saying Sky needed a sports entertainment coach, not a wrestling coach. This set up a Rampage tag team match. Uh, for a second, I thought we might actually get two women's matches on Dynamite. I thought this was going to lead to like a match in the second hour of the show, but alas, we did not. At least they set up a storyline for a Rampage match. So I did appreciate that. And lastly, on Rampage, Ryan Nemeth was in the ring talking shit about Philadelphia when Hook's music hit. He stormed down, hit all his suplexes on Nemeth, obviously, and locked in Red Rum before leaving. Ari Davari, Sunny Kiss, and some guy in a waiter outfit then walked out with a letter on a plate for Hook to take. Another segment that should have been on Dark. Why are we wasting time on this shit when AEW is limited with three hours of television time every week? I don't understand why some of the big talent on their shows is not getting TV time. And and by the way, I like Sunny Kiss. Like, I think there's something unique and special there to put on television and get them involved. But why are we wasting time with Hook, Ryan Nemeth, Sunny, who is not built up right now, Ari Davari, and like a waiter dude in a tux or a suit? Why are we wasting time with this on Rampage when you have all this other talent who needs to be on TV wrestling matches and developing storylines? I just do not understand it. I am pissed off. I'm pissed to the highest level of pissivity. I didn't really mean to hit that. I actually meant to hit this. That is one big pile of shit. Nevertheless, it was not good. Let us now move over to NXT where we saw the official unveiling of, let's call it the white and gold era, the third major era of NXT since it became a weekly show back in the day uh, on WWE Network, post-game show, I guess, version of NXT. It's probably at like version, what, 5.0 at this point, but... All right, we'll call it 3.0, white and gold, whatever you want to refer to it as, the newest era with Triple H in charge and Shawn Michaels at the creative helm. As we suspected, we talked about it on the last couple of shows, the WWE Performance Center was indeed renovated over the last two weeks. And as we hoped, the changes were minimal, yet all of them were improvements. The mat 
at first looked like it was black. And, and maybe that's what they use for NXT Level Up. I have not seen that show in a while, but it was removed. And it looks to be kind of a grayish color, darker than WWE's normal mat. But I'd really have to compare. The ring ropes were changed from this really stupid blue that never made any sense to white. I'm glad they didn't go with yellow and they allowed this look to kind of stand on its own and not be the same as the black and gold NXT. The barricades were also pushed back from the ring to create more space at the ringside area. That was badly needed for safety. I think EO Sky may have like a screw in her ankle or something because she hit the barricade on a move. It was always way too dangerous. I said it from the second that we saw it. Um, So I'm glad that they pushed those back. Safety, uh, just the aesthetic looks better as well. Also, the barricades are now padded in black instead of that lucite where you could see fans' legs and things like that, which was never an attractive look. Uh, The big NXT sign and all the screens above the fans, the entrance area, all of that was largely unchanged, but they had new graphics packages. Uh, It featured kind of like a fire aesthetic. Yellow was by far the primary color. It is the dominant color, but in the graphics packages, there were some orange, red, black. The logo itself obviously is white and gold. But this is what we were talking about in terms of keeping the product bright and colorful while reducing and focusing the color palette. The on-screen graphics, like the uh, the nameplates and all those types of things were mostly gold and white. Basically, everything just fit together and was way, way more simple and attractive than 2.0. Yet at the same time, it didn't lose some of the improvements that were made to make it a little bit more hip and modern, not as dark, none of the skulls and all that bullshit that Triple H was kind of doing. This was what I would consider an exact representation of what I suggested NXT should have looked like originally when they made the 2.0 switch. So as you can tell, I was fond of the adjustments from top to bottom, and I really don't have any notes on them right now. I thought I'd have some criticisms, but I don't. It was pretty much rebranded perfectly. It's the best thing I can say. So let's get into the show itself. Isla Dragunov was shown removing his ankle brace in a video package. He explained for the United States audiences the circumstances of him vacating the title. He said the Braun Breaker versus Tyler Bate match reinvigorated him because it should have been him unifying the titles. Dragunov called Breaker a great champion, but said he's only human while Isla is a machine who will stop at nothing to win. Dragunov also promised to suffer and endure pain in Halloween Havoc promising it will all be worth it to become champion again. J.D. McDonough watched film of both guys wrestling. He called them dumb, suggesting the smartest guy in the ring will leave as champion, and of course, that is him. Breaker was later being interviewed when Javier Bernal walked up, also calling Braun stupid for taking a triple threat match when that's how he lost the title the first time. Breaker said his temper got him into the first triple threat. His pride got him into this one, but Bernal's mouth got him into a one-on-one match next week. Dragunov's package was actually incredible. In fact, as I'm taping this show, he just tweeted it himself. So go find his Twitter account and watch it if you haven't. Uh, It told you everything you needed to know about this guy. If you weren't familiar with him from NXT UK, it also reinforced everything that some of us who did watch NXT UK already know about him. That's very positive. I do wish some time had been spent on his feud with Walter to kind of put over him conquering the unconquerable. But other than that, it was perfect. And you know what? McDonough's was really good too, probably the best presentation of him that we've seen yet, which was really necessary for a character that's been flailing out there, both in the ring and in video packages. And even Breaker came across well in his backstage segment. Solid all around, 
especially given that I've been heavily criticizing the main event storylines and presentation for a while, to see all three of these guys presented well on the same show, that was definitely a step in the right direction. Pretty Deadly opened NXT dressed in formal British robes, wigs, and powdered faces. They put on exaggerated accents and were looking for new challengers after claiming to have beaten everyone else. Because of that, they wanted to be declared forever champions. As promoted on Raw, the brawling brutes interrupted with Pete Dunne getting bruiserweight chance. Ridge Holland was angry over a tweet that they sent. Pretty Deadly blamed Kevin Nash, then they blamed Kevin Patrick and Kevin Owens, but the brutes attacked anyway. Forget Pretty Deadly. This segment was pretty dreadful. I have no idea who came up with this concept or thought it made sense to take a team that was just last week showing off like their metro sexual tendencies, like the, the the way they dressed and groomed themselves and all those types of things, to then throw them into old British formal wear and have them do like exaggerated accents with really flat, bad jokes. Their entire part of the segment sucked. The Brutes appearing and attacking, it saved the opening, it got the crowd hyped, so at least that was a positive to the entire thing. And I love that we're now going to get regular main roster excursions down in NXT. That's a huge positive. But in terms of like the stuff that Pretty Deadly did on their own here, I'm sure it popped some of you who like them. I just thought, again, I thought it was pretty dreadful. And I did think that was a uh, pretty smart turn of phrase there. Uh, Tag Team Championship was on the line, deadly against the Brutes, as I mentioned. Before the match, Briggs and Jensen and Malik Blade and Idris Anofe both approached the Brutes, saying they wanted the first shot at the titles, basically assuming that they would win. Holland told Briggs and Jensen to stay aggressive, and then he advised Blade and Anofe to get serious. Holland power slammed the champions into each other. Butch got the hot tag with a sunset for the powerbomb on Kit Wilson off of Holland's shoulders, and then a moonsault of Elton Prince outside. There was crazy, like a lumbar-assisted code breaker by Pretty Deadly. Holland interrupted spilt milk. Butch hit Wilson with a botched bitter end, but Prince got his partner's foot on the rope. Prince purposely tried to punch the referee, and got pounced out of the ring. The Brutes then did the kick power slam finisher, which again, they, that finisher needs to be improved. Holland went to cover, but the referee didn't count for no reason whatsoever. Suddenly, Imperium ran down. Giovanni Vinci never touched Holland. Ludwig Kaiser did hit Butch. I think it was in front of the referee. He didn't call a DQ. Instead, Holland got tripped up and he ate spilt milk for the title retention. The Brutes and Imperium then battled into the crowd. Blade and Anofe entered after the match. Uh, then Briggs and Jensen appeared on the crow's nest and used some new stupid hand gesture that they did with each other. And this was clearly setting up a triple threat match at Halloween Havoc. The match was strong from like a work rate standpoint. Good action up until what I would say are the final 30 seconds of the match, which were just absolutely convoluted as hell. And while I appreciated not doing a DQ and letting the champions win, it was such a dirty victory that a DQ... Actually, probably would have been better here, if we're being honest. It was it would have been easier to stomach in this situation. The triple threat match for Halloween Havoc, it's totally uninspired. Neither team that's challenging should be champion, and the titles have been changing way too frequently. So the retention, I hope, is obvious. I'm just not really into this. Coming out of a week where I was all about Pretty Deadly, I loved what they did. Here, I just, it was a zero. Carmelo Hayes fought Aro Mensa. Mensa got a lot of offense, including a great springboard moonsault. Trick Williams saved Mello from a huge roundhouse kick in the corner. Mello then caught Mensa with a codebreaker and hit his flying leg drop for the win. After the bell, Mello jumped on commentary, saying he would stay to watch the qualifying match. This was solid. I was not purposely short on it. There just wasn't 
anything that remarkable to mention prior to the finish. Mello did a good job selling for Mensa, and obviously the right person went over. Mello is well beyond the North American Championship, as we've said already at this point. So the hope remains that he just doesn't win it again and is part of a really good match at Halloween Havoc. So Andre Chase fought Von Wagner in a qualifier. Chase chopped Wagner down with basement dropkicks and Chase used stomps. Mr. Stone distracted, so Thea Hale got under him, carrying him on her shoulders and then body slamming his ass outside. It was a great spot. After Chase's pinning combination failed, Wagner hit a big boot and then his fireman's carry release slam whatever that is, for the win in three minutes and 30 seconds. Chase U is super entertaining, but from a booking standpoint, this was the wrong winner in way too short of a match. These guys were working well together. This easily could have gone eight minutes and like been maybe a little bit of a barn burner. Instead, no one got over except for maybe Thea Hale. Chase 100% should have won this and been in the ladder match. It makes the win over Mello completely nonsensical. Why do you have him beat Mello if you're not gonna put him in the title match? Just silly. Uh, wrong decision, top to bottom. After the bell, Mello was talking his talk on commentary as he always does. When Wesley flew in out of nowhere to attack him, they got separated later backstage. Wesley said the attack wasn't a message, but a receipt for the locker room attack. He said he will go all out for the title, but wants to get his hands on Mello first. Stax then came up and blamed Wesley for injuring Tony D'Angelo, even though we know it didn't happen. He did mention that it was a PCL injury. So in theory, that should not take that long to recover from. It was smart to not ignore the way the D'Angelo match finished. I presume we're going to get Wesley against Stack soon. Mello will interfere and then somehow we'll get them one-on-one on the go-home show before Halloween Havoc. That's what I'm guessing. It would work quite well if that's what they do with all three of these guys. Uh, Nathan Frazier told Sanga how he had entered a new mindset after being down 0-1 to Axiom. Sanga said he's disappointed he can't win the North American title, but he'll be rooting for Frazier in the match. When Frazier left, Veer entered the picture in a finely tailored suit. It was maroon. It actually looked great. He stood next to his former Indu share partner. He didn't really say anything. Folks, how long have I been talking about getting Veer on TV looking like a million bucks the same way he looks when he shows up on Twitter? I guess this is the case of ask and you shall receive, or maybe someone's listening and stealing our ideas. There is no reason for freaking Veer to pop me. But this absolutely did. Let these dapper dudes figure things out as a tag team. And you know what? They don't need to sit in NXT if they can make it work. Have them figure it out and bring them up quickly. That was a good one, man. Axiom later got a video package where he talked about his first two matches being close and how he was excited to be able to write the final chapter with Nathan Frazier live, not in a comic book. This fit his character and it worked well enough. Toxic Attraction arrived in a black SUV, but Alba Fire was there to meet Gigi Dolan and JC Jane with bat shots to the gut before she jumped in the vehicle, which drove off. Caden Carter and Katana Chance were later shown having a conversation about their lives, their starts in WWE, and their relationship that ultimately led to them becoming a tag team. The former Casey Catanzaro basically confirmed reports from a couple years ago that she nearly quit WWE, but she said Caden was there for her the entire time. It strengthened their relationship, and here they are now, the women's tag team champions. They also said they'd be watching the number one contendership match closely. We've talked about the Casey's being dynamite in the ring and one of the only true women's tag teams in WWE for a while now. This was probably the first time in their entire NXT run where their personalities were allowed to shine, allowing fans to like buy into them as individuals and as a team. This should have been done a year ago, but better late than never. 
I know they're not everyone's cup of tea. Some people really don't like them. I'm a fan. I thought this was extremely well done. And I maintain whenever it comes time for them to drop these titles, they should immediately get called up to the main roster and be part of a women's tag team division up there that yes, they did bring the titles back and they have revitalized it a little bit, but there's no division. There's no tag teams that have been set up. They need tag teams in WWE. And the KC's, first of all, they need a name. They still don't have one, which is ridiculous. I think at one point they called themselves Team Ninja. Terrible name. Um, they need a name and they need to get called up. As simple as that. Toxic Attraction fought Zoe Stark and Nikita Lyons for the number one contendership. Strong action both ways early. JC hit Lyons with a running neckbreaker as Toxic went for their finisher. Lyons pulled Jane out of the ring by the legs. Stark then hit Dolan with her flip over GTS before, I think, is some type of name to it. I'll try to, it's something 360, I think is the name. Regardless, uh, she hit her with that before Lions nailed her split leg drop pinning combination for the win. The champions were unfazed watching it unfold backstage. The match was actually well wrestled. Lions inexperience kind of got hidden a little bit and the right team won given Toxic should be completely away from the title picture. It could have been longer. That's really my only criticism. Uh, we had the Grayson Waller effect with Roxanne Perez and Cora Jade as guests. Waller pulled up in a yellow Hummer, demanding security be on call for his segment. He sat between the ladies at a desk and played to like a picture-in-picture camera that was only on him the entire time as the women argued and the other camera changed angles. Cora said Roxy was a lot of internet hype and not a lot of talent. Waller kept yelling at them for talking over him. He announced that they will choose each other's opponents out of the entire WWE roster in two weeks. And then he announced that their Halloween Havoc match will be spin the wheel, make a deal as a stipulation. Waller wanted to spin it and choose for them. They brushed him off. So he ran to the wheel anyway as security came in to ensure that neither Roxy nor Cora fought each other. So he spins the wheel. It lands on a weapons wild match. Cora then tries to hit Roxy with her kendo stick. So security forcefully separated them as Waller recorded himself on his phone. Suddenly, Apollo Crews appeared disguised as a security guard. He pulled Waller off the canvas and underneath the ring. When Waller emerged, his his jeans were completely torn apart. His eyes were bleeding, and the same vision Cruz had from a couple weeks ago became reality with the bloody eyes. Waller then crawled to the back with Cruz chasing him. This thing was a total mess. The interview part of the segment was fine. So if it had like ended there, we'd be really positive about the entire thing. But the ladies were totally repetitive in what they were saying, and it did not advance the storyline at all. And the whole point of spin the wheel, make a deal as a stipulation is for suspense to lead to a surprise. Not only did they waste it like three to four weeks before Halloween Havoc for no good reason whatsoever, they picked the most generic match as the stipulation. Weapons. Every street fight or stipulation match with no DQ uses weapons. So what's the point of this entire thing? Why not do something unique and different? Why not delay this, build suspense, have them fight their individual matches against main roster competition that they're talking about and whoever wins their respective match faster or if only one of them wins and the other loses, that person gets to spin the wheel. Like, do something to build it up. It was such a mess, so convoluted and thrown together. And then on top of that, there was the continuation of Cruz's completely nonsensical gimmick. What is this guy supposed to be? How exactly did Waller's eyes begin bleeding? They can't be doing like an eye for an eye match again. So what is the point of this? Like, what exactly are they going to be getting to? This could have been executed so much better, both in the short term and the long term. I just did not understand why they did this in this particular way. Brutus Creed 
snapped at a trainer backstage checking out his right shoulder, which was all red and bruised. Julius tried to calm him down as Duke Hudson walked up to talk shit. Julius got in his face and challenged him before telling Ivy Nile to keep an eye on Brutus so that he could fight. So we get Julius against Hudson. Julius had a half and half suplex, his turning slam that I still don't know the name to, maybe someone can tell me, and the basement lariat for the win in 53 seconds. After the bell, Brutus ran down and destroyed Hudson with Julius, pulling him off of him four times. Damon Kemp appeared in the crow's nest to talk shit. Brutus wanted to fight. Kemp said it was Julius's turn. Kemp called Brutus his bitch, saying if Julius beats him at Halloween Havoc, Brutus can get a rematch. But if Kemp wins, Brutus must leave NXT. Brutus accepted on Julius's behalf. Julius added one more stipulation, making it an ambulance match, calling back to how Kemp took out Roderick Strong a couple months ago. So if you just compare this to what we were talking about earlier with the mask versus career, this one had a ton of build, a lot of bad blood, and both stipulations that were enacted here made sense within the realm of the storyline. First with the match, I know Hudson has tried and failed numerous times in NXT, but it was still a shock to see this guy just get squashed in under a minute. Braun Breaker did the same thing to him recently. In fact, Hudson has not had a TV match longer than three minutes since May. That's absolutely wild. The post-match jawing and the Halloween Havoc booking, that was strong. I can't see any good reason to split up the creeds or for Brutus to leave WWE at the height of their popularity. So I have to assume Julius wins. Julius is the star. He will be a singles champion on the main roster eventually one day. But there is just zero reason to end this tag team before they are multiple years into their main roster WWE careers. Lash Legend fought Wendy Chu. Legend backstage said she talks a lot of shit but backs it up. Chu chopped down Legend by the legs. Then she dodged a boot from Legend with Lash's leg like winding up on the top rope. Chu kicked her second leg out and then hit a top rope falling splash for the win in four minutes. Another match that was just far shorter than it should have been. I figured last week that Lash was going to go over Wendy, even though that would have been the wrong booking given Chu had just beaten Tiffany Stratton. So they actually made the right decision here in having Wendy win, but Legend looked like absolute shit losing to someone half her size in four minutes. Just let them frickin' wrestle. I don't understand why you can't give them six, seven, eight minutes in a match. It it doesn't make sense. Uh, Gallus announced in a tape promo that they were suspended for their actions last week. They called the NXT security soft, promised to be back soon, and then called out Briggs and Jensen pretty deadly, and even Braun Breaker, saying they were going after all the titles. It's been a rough start for Gallus in the United States. This was easily the best thing they've done to this point. Well scripted, well executed. I presume that they maybe had to go back to the UK, and that potentially is a reason for the storyline delay. Hank Walker, the security guard, fought Zion Quinn. The other guards put Hank over before his first contracted match. Quincy Elliott gave him a heads up that Quincy pissed off Zion last week, so he should stay focused. Hank worked as an inexperienced wrestler doing basic moves and using his size to his advantage. Quinn won with the flying forearm in two minutes and 15 seconds. Zion went to deliver another forearm after the bell when Quincy ran in for the save and a slap on the ass that startled Walker after the bell. This is a match where I have no problem with it being short, given the experience gap between Zion Quinn and Hank Walker. For a guy as physically impressive as Zion, though, I keep saying this. Holy shit, does he need a better finisher? What is with Zion Quinn and Karrion Cross with these stupid forearm finishers to the back and front of someone's head? One's flying, one's uh, like a lariat style. They're terrible. We want, as wrestling fans, we want finishing moves. And a forearm to the head ain't it. 
And by the way, Jericho's Judas effect, that ain't it either. That sucks. He executes it notably poor. Oh, there's other people who do it better where you can kind of accept it. But all these guys, they just got to do something better than what they are. And lastly, the schism, the person in the red hoodie was passing out buttons in the parking lot early in the show. When they came backstage, Schism screamed at that person for no reason that I could discern, saying they need to do better before walking off. That person was later shown wearing a yellow mask underneath the red hoodie when Cameron Grimes came up and told them not to take Joe Gacy's shit. Schism attacked Grimes and destroyed him with a trash can. Gacy then praised the person for a job well done and hugged them, still without a reveal on who they are. This actually showed a little bit of a different side to Gacy and the group. And because it was different, It was interesting. As usual, I still don't care about the gimmick or storyline. It sucks and everyone else is worth for being involved in it. Simple as that. So that is it for this week in NXT and obviously this week in AEW as well. A mixed bag across both shows. AEW really did have some good wrestling on the show, but a lot of the booking decisions were you just had to scratch your head about it. NXT, there actually was a lack of good wrestling, which is a little bit of a surprise because usually there's one or two matches on the show that are notably good. The tag team match, Deadly and Brutes, was solid. But usually there's two matches each show that's better than what that match was. So I didn't love that. The booking was better than it was the last two weeks. NXT as a whole was better than it was the last two weeks. But still, within that, there were some issues there as well. So really, I hope AEW and NXT really keep improving as we move forward. Speaking about moving forward, let me tell you what's still left this week in the Getting Over Universe. That would be a WWE Extreme Rules Instant Analysis podcast Saturday night, very soon after that show goes off the air between now and then we will also have a WWE Extreme Rules live pre-show on Twitter spaces. That's going to start either at 6.30 p.m. Eastern or 7 p.m. Eastern on Saturday. One of the two, we will tweet it out with a way that you can do like a reservation and a reminder. So do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. That way you can find out when the live show is. You can join in, provide your comments, ask questions live to myself, Vintage Chris Vanini, and join in on the fun. We will also post pre and post show polls for WWE Extreme Rules on our Twitter account, Getting Overcast. So again, be sure to follow. That way you can vote in those, get episode drops, news, fun stuff, whatever, at Getting Overcast on Twitter. And one more reminder before we get out of here, this podcast. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, drop those five-star ratings, take a few moments on Apple, and also leave a written review. Let everyone know why you listen, tell them why they should subscribe, and we will read it here, live on the show. Thank you all once again for joining us for this latest edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. It is now time for the Silver King to sign off. We will be back on Saturday with that WWE Extreme Rules instant analysis. But at this point, I'm going to leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.